Father, we just come before you today with deep recognition of our amazing need. Lord, we recognize that we are still living in this world. We're not of it, but we're living in it. And we're affected by all of its uh, devastating outcomes, Lord, including even death. Lord, we, we thank you that Tim knew you. He served you. He's with you. But now we think of Ellen and the children. We pray for your grace to sustain them in this time of great change, time of grief and loss. We pray for your comfort, your understanding, your nurture and nature to minister uh, your grace, your love, your mercies to them. Lord, I pray as well for us as we look at your word today that your voice would speak into our lives. And the question that we're going to hear today, Lord, help us to be able to respond to it in a way that will bring life and not death to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to turn. Uh, Once again, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Some of you may not be aware of this, but uh, as we're preaching through this Gospel, we've actually been at it for quite a while. I've had other people speak when I'm not here, or I've spoken on other topics. But we started a year and a half ago on the Gospel of Mark doesn't seem that long ago, but it just we've been plowing through it, and I, I really have enjoyed uh, studying this gospel. It's very powerful. Actually, Vicki told me the other day, my executive assistant, she said, I had her do some work on my sermons that I keep track of, and she said, Pastor, I've, I've got them all categorized the way you wanted them to be categorized, and she said, I don't know if you realize this, but you have over 1,000 sermons, like 1,040 or something, you know, so, and some of you have listened to a lot of them. So, you know, kudos to you guys. <laughs> I was talking to someone yesterday. said, Pastor, I've heard you for 30 years now. I'm going, you are truly a saint. Uh, <clears throat> but anyways, let's turn to Mark chapter 15. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, tells uh, the story of a, a depiction of the very last great white throne judgment. And he says there we saw billions of people seated on a great plain before God's throne and most had shrunk back. But some surged to the forefront. They were raising angry voices and they were crying out, how can God really judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped one woman as she ripped a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. She said, we've endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. Other sufferers began to express their complaints against God for the evil and suffering that he had allowed into our world. What did God know of weeping, hunger, and hatred? God led a sheltered life in heaven. Someone from Hiroshima, someone born uh, with defects, others murdered, each sent their leader and concluded that before God could actually judge them, he should be sentenced to life on earth as a man, to endure the sufferings that they had endured. And then he would be fit to pronounce sentence. And so they said, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let his close friends betray him. Let him face false charges. Let a prejudiced jury try him and a cowardly judge convict him. Let him be tortured. Let him be utterly alone. And then, bloody and forsaken, let him die. And finally, the The place grew silent after the sentence against God had been pronounced. And no one moved and a weight fell on each. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. 
Dorothy Sawyers says that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is. And he's made us with limitations, has he not? He's allowed us to suffer. We've been subject to sorrow and death. God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. In other words, God became a man. God knows what it's like to live this life. He knows what it's like to suffer. He's been tempted in every point as we are, yet the scripture says, without sin. He's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it's like to be a human being. You know, sin has actually opened that door into our lives, but God in his great compassion, his mercy and his love, came to address sin and all of its ugly consequence. Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and took upon himself each and every one of our sins. So what have we done with Jesus? For the most part, in our world today, Jesus is ignored. Or he's wrongfully labeled, or he's cursed, and obviously was crucified. But I'm glad the story does not end there. How many are thankful that the Gospels did not end with just the crucifixion of Jesus? How many are glad that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, shame, sorrow, death itself, the last enemy of humanity. And he appeared to his disciples and revealed this amazing, glorious message to us that brings hope in the midst of suffering, brings you know, forgiveness in the time of shame and sorrow in our lives. You know, we do live in a world of great beauty too. It's not just the negative side, isn't that true? We live in a world with great joy. And so we have two sides to the same uh, coin, if we could say it that way. The reality is that no matter what you do, you cannot remain neutral about Jesus. That's what we're going to see today. It doesn't work that way, as Pontius Pilate discovered. As a matter of fact, Philip Yancey, quoting an anonymous author, says, Saints live in such a way that their lives would not make sense if God did not exist. And the reverse also applies. The true skeptic lives in such a way that life would not make sense if God does exist. Isn't that amazing? In other words, the two groups are making a declaration by how they are living, whether God is or isn't in people's minds. So I want to look at two responses today regarding the nature of Jesus and how he came to the end of his earthly life and the responses that were brought forth from this text of Scripture found in Mark 15. And so I want to look at the first of the two responses towards Jesus at his trial. And the first one is simply one of hostility. And sometimes we're kind of surprised, you know, that people are hostile about Jesus. I mean, think about it. One of the most loving... Uh, forgiving, compassionate, healing individuals. And yet, we see a lot of hostility directed towards Jesus. How many are actually uh, surprised by that? You know, why are people hostile towards Jesus? Does anybody know that they are? You want to take a little run here this week and find out if that's true? All you got to do is bring up the name of Jesus. Just start talking about Jesus, and I can guarantee you someone's going to get upset. Isn't that true? You know why? Because they're threatened. People are threatened by Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls for something. And it actually means that people have to put aside the way they live. They have to put aside their rebellion. And, that's, and, and this, this idea that they are really a lord unto themselves. You know, people want to just do their own thing. And so when you talk about Jesus, you get this kind of response. 
We find that what is true in most atheists, or many of them, is this endeavor to discredit the claims of Christ. How many have noticed that? You know, have you done any sort of reading? Richard Dawkins, you know, I just pick on him for a minute. He's written a lot of stuff. But there's a lot of people out there writing, you know, trying to discredit who Jesus is. And there's a variety of arguments presented by different skeptics. Some of them will suggest that Jesus didn't even exist. That's a pretty hard one to, you know, prove. Uh, there's a lot of history supporting the fact that Jesus actually existed. You've got to live in denial to, to go for that argument. But then there's some of them that would say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that it was actually his disciples that put that in the mouth of Jesus, you know, and that they're the ones that have a misunderstanding as to who Jesus really is as a person. You have all these different understandings. Some have argued in the past that Jesus never actually rose from the dead. You know, he just died on the cross, you know. So you have all these different presentations. But the reality is... When you look at why Jesus died, you have to ask yourself the question, why was it that Jesus died such a ghastly death? Why, why did the Romans actually crucify him? You know, what was it about Jesus that caused him to experience this death by crucifixion? And so we find here in Mark 14 and verse 60, we're leading up to chapter 15. I want to just repeat something I said two weeks ago, and it leads right into this message. It said, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? He's on trial before the Sanhedrin. What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And so the high priest asked again, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I love the way Mark does that. Actually, the way it's, you know placed in the Greek language, it's more of a statement. It's actually Mark putting in the mouth of the high priest the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. <clears throat> it's a theological question. And just so that you and I would not mistake or un- mis- mistakenly understand what Jesus is about to say, here in verse 62 we have this response. Jesus said, I am. You know, are you the Messiah? I am. But the word I am there is the actual personal name of God. It's the same words that were used when Moses asked God who was sending him to to the uh, Egyptians. Who would he say to the people of God that God was? And God said, I am that I am. Remember that? How many? Exodus 3 and verse 14. But to really help us understand that it's not just Jesus agreeing with the high priest, like saying, yeah, that's me. You know, he's actually declaring his personal name. He goes on to say, And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Now Jesus is quoting from Daniel chapter 7, and he's actually telling you who he is. It's very interesting. And I love the way uh, Timothy Keller in his book, Jesus the King, says, In Daniel 7, The Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds to judge the world. These clouds are actually the glory of God. See, we're thinking literal clouds. We're talking about God's represented presence. By his choice of text, Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see a paradox. And you know, sometimes the Bible does this to teach us things. You know, paradox means the opposite of what we would think. And it says here that there's been an enormous reversal. He is the judge over the entire world, being judged by the world. How many think there's a little irony when we judge God, when reality God is the judge? And isn't the world constantly judging God? Aren't people constantly criticizing God, condemning God, you know, uh, angry at God, blaming God? 
Isn't that the way it works? Sure, we hear it all the time. It's not any different today. You know, is not the world judging Jesus today, judging his church, the body? Is not the world rejecting his claims on their, on their lives? Now we pick up in Mark's gospel, we find that the Jewish leaders make a very interesting decision. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. In your newer NIV translation, it says, they made their plans. Now, you know, I had a little thought here. Why didn't these leaders just stone Jesus? As a matter of fact, under the law, if you committed blasphemy, the law required that you would stone a person, okay? And so, why didn't they just stone him to death? Matter of fact, a little later on, after Jesus has risen from the dead and the church has gone on for a little ways, we have a story of Stephen, remember? He's standing there, he's speaking to these religious leaders, and it says, He's telling them their history, and he says, you guys always resist the Holy Spirit. And then they do the blocking their ears because they don't want to hear and screaming out loud. Ever seen that? You know, know, they don't want to hear this information. It says it right there. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. Dragging him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their cloth, their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here they were actually stoning someone who they considered creating statements of blasphemy. Why didn't they do this to Jesus? Has anybody ever wondered that in your mind? You ever asked yourself that question? Why didn't they do that? Donovan said this morning, he's wondered that. You know, or you know what? They could have just dragged him off to King Herod, right? Remember in Acts chapter 12, this is another story. A little later on it says, And it was about the time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And then it says, He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So why didn't they just take him to Herod? Why did they bring Jesus to the Roman governor? Interesting question. I mean, it had to do really with their, you know, religious, you know, law. It was, had to do with the Torah. So why are they going through all of this work to get him to go before Pilate to say, somehow have him, you know, be put to death by the Romans? Well, James Edwards, a New Testament scholar, says, you know, John eighteen thirty one basically maintains that, you know, the Sanhedrin didn't do it because they didn't have authority to put anybody to death. They didn't have jurisdiction over that. But that never stopped them from killing people. Believe me, it just didn't. They still did it. But the reality was the authority of the governor would be important in quelling any popular outcry that might arise on Jesus' behalf. In other words, how many recognize as you're reading the story that there's a groundswell of support for Jesus? First of all, either they think he's a prophet or some of them are beginning to buy in the fact that he's the Messiah. And so now the Jewish leaders are deeply disturbed by that. They're threatened by that. As a matter of fact, we'll read a little later on that the leaders you know, handed him over because they were envious of the support of the people towards Jesus. So now all of a sudden, if they kill Jesus, what do you think is going to happen? They're concerned about a backlash against them. And so they don't want that. So they'd rather have the Romans kill Jesus so that they could deflect that kind of responsibility away from themselves. How many are following this? But I think there's an even deeper reason for why they did it. 
He says, moreover, a verdict of Rome against Jesus, and especially the same of death by crucifixion, would severely damage attempts on the part of Jesus' followers to rehabilitate him. You know, what you need to understand is that they wanted to discredit Jesus. You know, let me, let me just explain this to us a little bit. How many recognize from the Old Testament Torah, the law, the book of Deuteronomy, that God declared that it was, you know, a curse to be impaled on a tree, to be hung on a tree. See, it says here, if a man is guilty of a capital offense, is put to death, and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Okay, so you have to have this in your mind. If you're going to be on a tree impaled, you're going to be crucified on a tree, how are people going to interpret that event? God has cursed them. Okay. Is everybody following this? So now he goes on to say, you must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as uh, an inheritance. Well, this form of punishment then was really designed to shame Jesus. They wanted to discredit him. That's what you need to understand. Uh, recently, I've been reading some materials on you know, the New Testament mindset, the culture of the day. How many know that people of different cultures look at life differently? See, a lot of times as North Americans, we have a certain frame of reference. And then we, we run into people and they have a totally different frame of reference. And we go, how come they think that way? That's because they are shaped by their culture. Okay, now we need to understand that the first century Mediterranean culture was a shame and honor based culture. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that, you know, I'll give you the big difference. Do you know what our culture is basically driven on? Economics. We define ourselves based on the ability to have things, the ability to acquire things. We have a system where we, in our minds, define in our heads what is a successful life and what is an unsuccessful life. And a lot of it's based on money. Okay? Does that make sense to us? That's how we think. Now, we can pretend that that's not the case, but just look at the overall culture. You may personally want to resist against that strong sense of materialism, but look at every election. It's always about the money, right? It's about the economy. It's all about that, folks, because that's a value that this culture holds deeply. But in the first century, they had a totally different worldview. See, you and I have an unlimited worldview. We feel like we can acquire as much as we want. But in the first century, they had a limited goods understanding. What that meant was simply this, that if somebody got something, that meant it was always at the expense of someone else. See, you and I don't even think that way. How many follow that? The other thing was, it's a kinship uh, culture. In other words, you know, the way you viewed each other was all designed within, the, within an in-group. And so you, you evaluated the sense of who you were based on how your peers saw you. Okay? You and I, we go, who cares? We'll just become somebody new, somebody different. We don't think that way. But you see, when you look at the story based on how these people think, now you're going to begin to understand why these leaders were envious of Jesus because now people were following Jesus. That meant that he was taking away their honor. You follow that? And so what they were really trying to do was discredit Jesus. Now, how do you do that? How do you discredit Christ? 
In their minds, it's real simple. If he's crucified, then the people will see that Jesus is being cursed by God. And therefore, he could not be an authentic voice from God. You follow what they're doing here, guys? How many are seeing this? They're actually reaching, a de- it's not just reaching a decision. They're formulating a plan how to shame and discredit Jesus in the minds of the populace. Are you all following this? Because in a the sense, they're trying to gain back these people so that they will be esteemed and held in honor. How many get this? This is a very interesting. So now, the apostle Paul understands this. And so one of the things he has to do when he's preaching in the Mediterranean world, and he's preaching to Jews and, and Greeks and the rest of them, and they're in the shame, honor culture, he has to show them, listen, you guys, you don't understand something very fundamental about the fact that why Jesus was actually crucified on a tree. He agrees with their premise. See, listen to what he says in Galatians 3.1. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, Jesus was accursed. He agrees with them. You're right. He is accursed of God. But for a reason you will not understand, you, you haven't thought about. In other words, Jesus took on our sin. He became the cursed. He became the curse so that you and I could be set free by God. See, he quotes from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So Paul is not disputing the way they're thinking about it. He's just basically saying you have to understand why God has allowed him to be cursed. You know, He is cursed because in reality, every human being on the planet that sins is now considered cursed by God. And when you and I receive Jesus Christ, we, he now, in a sense, he, we'll we'll look at it this way. He took on the curse of the entire world, but it only impacts us. We can only experience the benefit of that when we receive Christ. That's what Paul's argument would be. So let me move on to the, just two points here today. The second response towards Jesus at his trial, the first is one of hostility. You can feel it. The second one is one of ambiguity. Now that's a very fancy word of saying, leave things unclear. Okay? We don't want to, there's, there's a sense of nobody wants to make a decision about Jesus. We're going to find that out. Actually, I'm going to argue today that most people, when you talk to them about Jesus Christ, they don't have strong feelings. Some do. Some are totally against Jesus. Some are totally for Jesus. The vast majority of people living in Canada are ambiguous about Jesus, right? They just, they want to be a neutral. They don't want to make a decision about Jesus. They don't really want to think about Jesus, right? They just, don't bring Jesus up. I don't want to have a thought about it. Isn't that kind of where most Canadians are at? And I'm going to argue today that you cannot live in ambiguity about Jesus. And you're going to see why in a minute. It's something that Pilate learned. There's no neutral place. It's either we embrace Jesus for who he is or else we're denying his rightful place in our lives. There is no middle ground. And we see this. 
Here Pilate is trying to determine what to sentence Jesus. He's, he's brought, been brought this man. They're treating Jesus like a criminal. They bring him to Pilate. They say he's got all of these charges against him. So Pilate now is trying to sort this out because he's going to make a ruling. So we pick up the story here in verse 2 where Pilate was told by the religious rulers, this guy says he's the king of the Jews. In other words, he is a political threat to Rome. He's trying to formulate rebellion. Does everybody follow that? He's trying to create an insurrection. He's trying to create a revolt against Rome. See, the Sanhedrin is telling Pilate this. So Pilate's listening to all of this. Now, the role of a magistrate was to make a judgment against the criminals. So the verdict now is put in Pilate's hands. And so we see the question that Pilate asks. He says in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. I want you to notice how wise Jesus is in his answer. He's not going to deny he's the king of the Jews. Listen what he says. Yes, it's as you say. Now notice he didn't say it's yes, I am. That would have sounded quite like, that would have not sounded good. That would have went over really bad for Jesus, you know. But in a sense, Mark is putting this great confession once again in the mouth of Jesus' enemy. You know, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus goes, yeah, it's as you say, you know. Now, James Edwards says, again, even the mouth of Jesus' enemies unwittingly confess him. The claim to be the Messiah was not a crime in Judaism, but when translated into its political equivalent, king of the Jews, it became a more material concern to the governor. Rome did not arrest and crucify victims who were not at least perceived as political threats. So he's trying to figure out, is Jesus a political threat to Roman rule? You follow this? And he's, he's trying to figure it out. So Jesus, you know, he's got a lot of wisdom, you know. How many know Jesus is pretty smart? You know, so he answers this question. And it's not a direct affirmation or else Pilate would have immediately had grounds for execution. But it's not a denial. The reply is suggestive as if to say, well, you do well to consider the question, Pilate. He's, he's really kind of bringing it back to Pilate. Yeah, I am. You know, that's what you say. Yeah. You know, and what's really fascinating is how Pilate now, as he's moving through the sentencing of Jesus, is absolutely amazed. And actually, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Greek language, this idea stands out. Pilate is shocked by what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 3. The chief priests accuse him of many things. So again, Pilate comes to him and says, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. Why was Pilate amazed? Two things. One, Number one, how many know when people are accusing you, you know, and your life is now on the line and you don't defend yourself? How many know that's quite amazing? Okay, why didn't Jesus defend himself? Because back in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had made a decision. He had decided that he would take on the sins of the world. He had made a decision that he was going to die for us. So he was not going to go against that track whatsoever. So that's one of the reasons why he said nothing. Number two, uh, reason I believe that he didn't say anything is um, he's fulfilling, you know what the what, you know this this prophetic picture of the suffering servant. We find it in Isaiah chapter fifty three verse seven. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. You know, can I just sometimes say that the greatest witness 
many times in our lives is what we're not saying. You know, sometimes we say too much. You know, sometimes we should just be quiet. Jesus didn't say anything. You know, can I just encourage us? You don't have to defend God. Isn't that? God can handle himself. Believe me. You know these people that rally and rail and carry on? You know, when I was a brand new Christian, I, I would just study so I could argue with people, so I could help them, you know, get their head screwed on straight and get the picture, you know, straighten out their thinking with all their bad ideas. But you know what I discovered? Even when you would win the argument, if I could say it that way, even when you would point out to them the fallacy of their thinking, it didn't necessarily help them become a Christian. Because, you know, I discovered something. Most of the problems people are having with Jesus aren't intellectual. The biggest problem people are having with Jesus is moral. They don't want to do what Jesus wants them to do. They want to do their own thing. They want to live their own life. They don't want to have to be under someone else's authority. They're actually wanting to live in a state of rebellion. It took me a while to figure that out. So then I go, okay, even if you answer their questions, I think there are some sincere people who really you know, have questions that you need to help answer. But the vast majority of people, even when you straighten them out, they don't change. How many have discovered that? Anybody discovered that besides me? Okay, it's a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. You need to know that. The other thing I notice here um, is that this... We have to come to grips that there is a spiritual battle going on. How many have figured that out? And that we're constantly in this arena. Every day you're drawing breath, you're in a spiritual arena and you're in a fight. And listen to what Paul says to Timothy who's in the spiritual arena. This is what he says to him. Fight the good fight of faith. How many go, "That's, that's kind of militaristic, isn't it? How many of you feel like, I'm a warrior, most of you go, no, I'm not that at all. I don't think I'm like, you know, like we're like little cream puffs sometimes. You know, we don't want to think we're in a battle. You know, listen, I want you to know that you are in a spiritual conflict. You need to know that, and you can't just be passive about it. You have to literally, spiritually get the weapons of this warfare, and sometimes it's taking authority over your wrong thinking. It's in our own mind. The battle, the biggest battle is going on in your head. Most of us don't know that. And so, you know, we're, you know we, we think that, you know, I, I just got all these mental issues. Listen, folks, we need to have the Word of God so strongly etched in our mind that we can actually counteract the attacks that are coming against our thinking. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do you realize that when you and I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we are defeating the powers of darkness? Because this is the victory, even our faith. And the enemy is trying to undermine our faith. But now watch what it says. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. So what is he arguing? He says, look at the example of Jesus. He's standing before the judge, and he's making the good confession. And you go, well, yeah, but he only said... Yeah, that's who I am. Yeah, Jesus didn't, you know, it's it's amazing what Jesus didn't say. You know, sometimes we think we got to say a lot. Can I just say something? The fact that we live right is so powerful. You know, if you were yakking with your mouth but you're not living correctly, you're undermining everything you're saying. That's the problem. 
Now, I don't think it's wrong to say things. I think there's a time to say things, but you better be living it. You better back it up. Okay? You better back it up, you know, because otherwise they're going to just write you off as a non-credible witness. To keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. So I look it down and I said to myself, hmm, one of the challenges in living in an unholy world is living a holy life. How many say amen? That's true. That's one of the great challenges. How to live a life dedicated to God in a world that's totally re- in rebellion against him. That's the great confession of faith. We need to understand that. So the real issue is in our stand for Jesus. Will we identify with him when we're under pressure? Because we will have pressure come into our lives. And you know, it's easy to say I'm a follower of Jesus in the church here Sunday morning. Pastor's cheering us on. The choir's singing. It was not choir, but the band was singing. You know, and everyone's praising God and it's easy. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you go out there and you get around about 50 non-believers and you go, yeah. You know, it's a little harder. It's a little harder, right? To stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Especially when people are, you know, tearing the church down, tearing Christ down, and you go, yeah, but I'm one of those. It's a little harder. That's all I'm pointing out. Okay, listen to this. So to try, one of the things that happens in our world is that we try to fit in. How many of you go, that's true. We, we'd, how many here, you know, we don't want to really be, quote, unquote, different? We don't want to be weird. We kind of want to blend in, right? We don't want to stand out as being, oh, one of those. You know, now some of you go, hey, I'm happy. I've never, I'm a nonconformist. I have no problem being different. But the average person that I've met wants to blend in. How many go, that's true, Pastor? We want to blend in. But you know, sometimes when we're trying to blend in, we blend in too well. And then we start compromising because we want to blend in. And that's the challenge. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, we're warned by Paul. He says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So I always point out to people, but, you know, pay attention to who you're associating with. I, I have people that I know that are non-Christians, but they're not the people I'm, you know, hanging with every day. They're not my closest friends. They're people that are, I know them and I like them, but, you know, they're not my best friends. They're not, they're not affecting me because I'm, I'm living a certain way. And how many know that my lifestyle probably doesn't fit in with some of these people's lifestyles? You know what I'm saying? So it just doesn't fly. It doesn't work. I have no interest. Somebody says, hey, I'm going to go out Friday night and get bombed out of my mind. I'm saying, see ya. I have no interest in that. I've only got so many brain cells. I can't afford to lose any. You know. Come back to your senses as you ought, he says, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, we should not be surprised that we're going to experience hostility in the Christian journey. And we're, we're, we're uh, challenged to maintain this good confession of faith and live a holy life before God. But now I want to bring up something I think is very fascinating. Who really is on trial here? You know, we think Jesus is on trial. But I'm going to point out to you, I think, I think Pilate's on trial. When you start looking at the story very closely... Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he's going and he knows what he's going to do. He doesn't deny who he is and he doesn't defend himself. How many know, as far as Jesus is concerned, he's not on trial. He knows he's innocent. As a matter of fact, Pilate knows he's innocent. That's amazing. So who's really on trial here? You know, Pilate realizes, you know what? The reason why 
Jesus is in front of me is because of these religious leaders. Look at verse 9. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, I've got to explain something to you. See, Mark is writing to a Roman audience during Nero's reign. This is like 30 years later. And what was happening in Rome then is Nero's persecuting the church. So what Mark does not want to do is inflame the problem by saying the Romans were the bad guys. How many think that's pretty smart? So when Mark is writing, you get 15, 15 verses on the trial of Jesus, and Pilate is not painted in such a black picture. But when you turn to John's gospel, which is another 30 years later, and then you hear the story, it doesn't seem to be so important all of a sudden to you know, minimize Pilate's involvement. And in John, we read this. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. So how many know that Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent? Okay, he's got it in his mind. I know why he's here now. He's not guilty. He's innocent. What should a good judge do when you have an innocent person in front of you? Release him, right? But now we're going to find out Pilate's getting into trouble because something is happening. And here's what happens. He wants to release him. He comes back and says to them, you know, but the Jews are now insisting. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Because you see, you have to think back 200 years ago, before then, everybody was religious. Everybody believed in God or multiple gods. And as a Roman, he believed in many gods. And so he goes, hey, if this guy's a son of one of the gods, who am I going to start messing with? This is a little terrifying. This could be coming back on me. You know what I mean? He's worried about this now. He didn't want to hear that. That's the last thing he wants to hear. And then it goes, and from that time on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now you need to understand what's really the intensity of the situation because some of us, we don't get it. We think, well, it's real simple. You're the the governor, just let him go. Can I paint a different picture? I'll give you the picture of what what I see happening here. Pilate is the Roman governor, but he only has so many troops in the whole, you know, Palestine. You know, there are some peoples that you can conquer, but you can't govern. You know, I'm just reading a book about Afghanistan. Five empires have conquered Afghanistan. No one's been able to govern them. They're just not governable. They're, they're very difficult. They constantly fight you. The Jewish people are very unruly, if you don't know that. And the Romans were having a terrible time trying to oversee these guys. And so Pilate actually, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea Maritanus, which is by the, you know, the Mediterranean. And so he goes up at this time of the year, which is when? This was during the Feast of Passover. Why would he go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover? Well, I'll tell you why. Because a whole bunch of Jews showed up to the Feast of Passover. All the males from all around the world were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate those three main feasts, and one of them was the Passover. And so the city of Jerusalem would swell in number. Now, how many know that you've got a whole bunch of extra men now in Jerusalem, maybe up to 200,000 people there? And you've got a little detachment of soldiers. Maybe he had 6,000 men in all of the country, and you've got 200,000 people in Jerusalem. How many know this is a little bit of an intense situation? And then you go up there, and what are they celebrating? The Passover. And what is the Passover about? 
Can I give you the main tenets of the story? It's the story of the Jews who were under the Egyptian oppression whom God delivered. And these people are believing that God's going to deliver them. Now how many know that's kind of an explosive situation? So Pilate is on pins and needles right now because this thing could explode. Are you getting the picture? So he doesn't want this crowd to lose their thinking and to just go into a, a, a revolt. And by the way, in 66 AD, the governor of Rome actually triggered that revolt because he didn't use his head. It's a tinderbox is what I'm trying to get at. And so now, all of a sudden, in Mark, we pick up, now it was the custom of the feast to release the prisoner whom the people requested. Now, I've, I've read something. There was no outside materials that taught this, but the New Testament seems to indicate. And it makes sense that a governor could actually, you know, if he wanted to acquit a prisoner, he could do that. He had that kind of authority. So they bring it to him. A man was, by the, was called Barabbas, who was in prison with the insurrectionists, who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Now Pilate's thinking, great, I can get Jesus off my hands because I certainly know he's an innocent man. I want to set him free. But the crowd wants to set a murderer free. And so they shout out to, you know, to Pilate, hey, can we have somebody set free? He says, sure. He's thinking, good, Jesus, they'll pick Jesus, right? Guess what? Wrong thinking, Pilate. They picked Barabbas. Now all of a sudden, Pilate's got a problem on his hands because he now has to make a decision to free a guilty man and condemn an innocent one. How many go, that's a pretty big quandary to be in. And if he makes the wrong decision, he's going to have a a riot on his hands and he doesn't want that. So he's standing there wondering what to do. So here we get what I believe is the actual question that Mark wants us to hear. You know, I, I've been working on this passage for two weeks, and I'm sitting down, I'm saying, okay, these guys are, you know, turning him over because of envy. And then I read at the very end, the last verse, that Pilate gave in because he wanted to satisfy the crowd. I could preach on, you know, capitulating to the crowd, being, you know, under the pressure of society, which is true. We're all under that pressure. I could talk about envy, but you know what? Mark, in his gospel, you know what the real point of this whole exercise is? is it's the next verse, verse 12. Because Pilate then says to them, well, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? And you know what? That's the verse Pilate wants us, Mark wants us to hear. That's the, that's, the, that's the question that Mark is asking all of us. He's, he's basically, the question that Pilate is raising is actually the question that each one of us needs to answer. What are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus? Actually, you don't pick this up in the English text, but in the Greek language, you actually have this intensification of the verb tenses right in the spot. Isn't that interesting? What am I going to do with Jesus? And can I just say that whatever we decide to do with Jesus is going to affect you for the rest of your life. It is the most important question we ask, and you cannot remain ambiguous. You have to make a decision. We're like Pilate. We're forced to deal with something. Because if you and I make the wrong decision, we're going to suffer eternal consequences. We're going to be eternally separated from God. What we do with Jesus is the big question of life. And the crowd shouted out, crucify him. And under pressure to be politically correct, to satisfy the mob, Pilate gave in to them. What are we going to do with Jesus? It's a question that we all have to answer. It's a question that our society does not want to answer. 
Do you know, nearly 100 years ago, in 1917, I have a sermon series of books by George Truitt. He actually preached a sermon entitled, What to Do with Jesus. And you know, I like the way he said it. He frames it. He says it this way, do something with Jesus, I must. I cannot evade the question. I cannot avoid it. I cannot escape it. Neutrality, respecting that question, is impossible. I can accept him as my Savior, or I can reject him and turn him away from him, just as this man Pilate did. I can crown him as my Savior, or I can crucify him morally in my heart. I can put him away and have nothing to do with him, but I must do one of these two things. There's not three things to be done about Jesus, but only two. I shall either be his friend or his foe. I shall either accept him or reject him. How do you like that? There is no neutral ground. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me. And you know, listen to this. You and I can only go to heaven. You and I can only have eternal life if we accept Jesus Christ as our king. We have to surrender to his lordship. We have to lay down our rebellion within our human soul. The one that says, I'm the captain of my own soul. We have to lay that down. What are we going to do with Jesus? You know, sometimes when we have this question asked to us, some of you are very secure right now. You're thinking, well, I've already answered that question, Pastor. I've already given my life to Jesus. Praise God. But can I say something to you? This is not a question that's asked once. This is a question that's being asked every single day. What are you doing with Jesus? Yeah, well, I'm busy. I don't have time to do to my devotions. But what are you doing with Jesus? Yeah, but there's a business proposition here, and I don't know what to do. But if I do this, then I'm going to lose a lot of money. But if I don't do that, you know, maybe it's a little ethically gray. What am I going to do with Jesus? Or what am I going to do with Jesus in this relationship where, you know, I'm being tempted to maybe, you know, run off with somebody else? What am I going to do with Jesus? I could go down and talk about every single moment of your life, and you could be asking that question over and over again, but what am I going to do with Jesus? How is Jesus going to fit into this decision? What am I doing with Jesus? How many are beginning to see this is a little bit of an intrusive question? This isn't just, you know, I've made a one-time decision to follow Jesus. This is like an everyday question, but what am I doing with Jesus? That's the power of this question. Is that amazing? Let me close with a verse. I was reading this morning in the book of Jeremiah. Wow. Was it powerful? I was just thinking, you know, it's, it's so serendipitous, I think. I, I think it's providential. I think it's God. You're reading something and you're, you're thinking, I'm, I'm doing my quiet time. Because, you know, before I, I work on my sermon again for the last time, before I'm going to preach it, I do my own devotional time, and I'm, I'm not even locked onto my sermon. I start with this, and then I come back to my sermon. And I'm reading these words in Jeremiah chapter 12. And Jeremiah is complaining to God, and he's complaining about how life is not fair. And, I, you know, I'm going to give you his complaint. Some of you are going to agree with him. He says, you're always righteous, O Lord, Jeremiah 12.1, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak to you about your justice. In other words, God, I have a few questions about how you handle life and how things don't always seem to be just or fair how many when you're a kid that's not fair you know anybody ever said that that's not fair you know and I think a lot of times we're saying to God as kids on planet earth that's not fair and Jeremiah was saying that he was a prophet he said why does the way of the wicked prosper and why do all the faithless live at ease in other words 
hey, these guys are, they don't have any thought for you, God, and it just seems like, you know, you got favor and blessing, they're doing good, and, and man, it's, they're living life, and here I am, you know, struggling. That's not fair. See? You know, you have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You were always on their lips. This is very powerful. I want to say this because, you know, a lot of us, this is going to shake you up. They are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. The translation I was reading said, far from their consciousness. You know, one of the great tragedies is that a lot of people are professing Christianity and they're creating a God after their own image. They have a, their own understanding of how things should operate in life. But I want to shatter that today because I think we've got to get back to the Scriptures and take a look at who God really is. And he better not be the God that's made in your image. Because you know what I'm finding? A lot of people are justifying their behavior based on who they are, not based on who God is. And I hate to tell you this, but if that's the way you're living life, you're going to come up short. Because God's going to always agree with you, at least the one that you've created. But when I read my Bible, God doesn't always agree with me. And that's a problem. There's a gap between the two of us. And I have to make a decision. And there should be moments in your life when you're going, this is what I want and this is what God wants. And I'm wrestling with it. Anybody have those moments? i got to decide, okay, what am I going to do here? Okay, i got to forgive this person. Okay, I've got to do this. I have to do the right thing because it's not what I want. It's what God wants me to do. Is this making sense? And you know what the tragedy is? There's going to be people going to heaven thinking they're like one of God's kids. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, and speak in tongues? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Those are the most profound words. How many know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm quoting Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Read it. Jesus said, only those who do my will. It's not what you're saying you're doing. It's the ones that are doing the will of God. What are you doing with Jesus? Is that a powerful question? Do you know what happened to Pilate? He messed up again. He spent 10 years as the governor. He got recalled, brought back to Rome. Historically, he committed suicide. His life did not go good. What are you doing with Jesus? Let's stand this morning. It's going to have us bow our heads as we close the service in prayer today. You know, I'm not trying to be mean or malicious here. I'm just raising the question because sometimes, you know, we can develop a comfort zone with God. But it's a false comfort zone. That's all I'm saying. And I'm trying to get us to examine our hearts a little bit. And I'm trying to get you to look past you know, just justifying what you're doing because, you know, yeah, I've prayed the sinner's prayer, Pastor. I've given my life to Jesus. But are you really living for him? In other words, what are you doing with him? This isn't about doing your thing. You know, if I could take every single person in this room and sit down with you and say, say to you one-on-one, I'd go, what are you doing with Jesus? Are you saying, Lord, I want your will for my life. I want your kingdom. I want to fulfill your purposes for my life. It's not what I want. It's what you want. And in the end, you know what I'll tell you what will happen? When you and I do what God wants us to do, 
You will discover a joy you've never known before. You will discover meaning you've never had before. You will discover purpose you've never known before. Because when we put God first in our lives, the true essence of who we are as a designed human being made in his image now comes to the forefront. But some of us, we have an obscure view of what we think God wants. And if we pursue anything that other than God's will, we will never be fully satisfied, ever. So I'm challenging us today. What are you doing with Jesus? And with every head bowed right now, maybe you've never given your life to Christ, but you're hearing this morning, I got a choice to make. I can't be ambiguous. Maybe you're hostile, I don't know. But I'm pointing out to you, you can't be ambiguous. You can't be unclear. You've got to decide. You have to choose. And not to choose Jesus is to choose to reject him and his rightful place in your life. You have that choice. Maybe you're here today say, you know what? I want to choose Jesus. Just raise your hand. That's you. Just raise your hand. God bless you. Anybody else? Yes, that's great. Good. How many here, you're believers today. You say, you know, pastor, God is speaking into my soul. I realize God's calling me to a daily life of surrender to Christ. And I, and I admit, I just default. I just do my own thing. I'm not asking the question, what about Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? You know, in every decision, what am I doing with Jesus? What a great question, isn't it? How many think it's a great question? What am I doing with Jesus here? You know, how many here say, you know what? I want to make a fresh surrender. I want, I want this to become a daily way of life with me. That I'm thinking this way, Pastor. I'm making choices based on what I'm doing with Jesus. But I get up in the morning and I say, hey, what am I doing with Jesus? I'm spending time with him this morning. What am I doing with Jesus? I'm listening to what you have to say to me today. What am I doing with you, Jesus? I'm going to do what you want me to do today. I may have to forgive somebody. I may have to bless somebody. I may have to call somebody. I'm just not going to do my thing. I'm going to do your thing. I'm going to do your will, Jesus. And I guarantee you that if you will start living like this, a new joy will start coming into your life. God will take control and begin to use you in a way you've never been used before because you've been answering the question, what I'm doing with Jesus. I'm taking him with me everywhere I go. I don't have to be talking all the time. I've already told you that. Jesus didn't say a lot. He just did the right things. He knew what to say, when to say it, what not to say, and he knew what to do. Is that powerful? That's the Christian life. So Father, I come before you today, and we want to answer that question. What am I going to do with Jesus? I'm going to surrender to him. What am I going to do with Jesus? I'm going to live for him every single day of my life. I'm going to choose his way over even my own way, which sometimes is not a bad way, but it's not the best way. It's not your way. And anything less than that is living beneath what you have for my life. Help us, oh God, to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.